Hello. In my current role running the NHS Confederation, I've taken a much greater interest in health stories, including those about medical science. In doing so, and, and to be clear, my sources tend to be the BBC and the broadsheets, I've noticed something. There tends to be a different quality to science reporting. It generally feels more careful than a lot of other news coverage. Whatever the headline, there's usually an attempt to explain rather than simply excite. Articles often include more in-depth sections. And again, unlike most reporting, there are often qualifications attached to claims. This is still preliminary research, or it will take several years for this discovery to turn into any kind of product. Indeed, overall, I'd say all journalism would be a lot better if it was more like science journalism. But it hasn't always been this way, and still sometimes it goes wrong. Today on Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to someone who's played a central role in improving the media treatment of science, but also someone who has stories about how and why things can go wrong, and concerns about whether we'll be able to maintain the highest standards of science reporting into the future. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Fiona Fox OBE, the founding director of the Science Media Centre and author of a fascinating book, Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's media controversies. Hi, Fiona, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm great. Now, I want to explore some of the fascinating case studies in the book. But the story of how you came to do this job is interesting in itself. And I'm sure people listening will assume that to become the first director of the Science Media Centre, you must have already been a scientist and probably a journalist. But that wasn't the case, was it? <laughs> no. And in fact, my friends, uh, it was a subject of great hilarity that I was uh, keen to move into the world of science PR because I didn't have a single science O-level and not much by way of scientific knowledge or understanding. But I am a news junkie and I'm a press officer who's always worked for organisations that are kind of newsworthy. And what was happening around the time that I thought I'd like to go into science was MMR, GM, BSE, animal rights activists, it was dominating the headlines. So that's back in the late 1990s, early noughties. And I just, I could see that scientists weren't doing very well at this. And I thought that I had the skills to help them do better. And I've always been passionately pro-science, pro-evidence. I've always liked that way of understanding the world. So I basically, it's one of those where, you know, when you go for an interview and you think you've got zero chance of getting a job and there's something quite liberating about it because you're the wild card, you've got nothing to lose. You're sitting there in front of them with them saying, we want a, a PhD and a postdoc in science as well as a great communicator. I think what worked in my favour, and this is kind of a theme of the book, isn't it? But but 20 years ago, there weren't that many people with, with both. So they really wanted the media relations acumen and expertise, but this very strong scientific background. And not many people had both. You know, the Brian Coxes of this world, Jim Al-Khalili's, all these fantastic scientists who are great communicators, they weren't really around back then. So I, I kind of benefited from, from the parlous state of, of science where very few of them were fantastic communicators and certainly very few press officers who'd been around and, and, and helped other sectors to get their 
voice across. So that was it. They offered me the job. They immediately told me that they're taking £10,000 off the salary because I didn't have the scientific background they wanted, but they did want me. And they would put that into a pot to hire a good scientist to be my number two with a PhD and a postdoc, which was eminently sensible. And I was delighted. So, And how expert do you feel you are on science now? Because I mean, I can partly ask this from a personal perspective, because I, like you, was useless at science at school. I blame the teachers. And I've always felt inadequate about it. And and periodically, I kind of pick up a book of popular science in a desperate hope that I can find a way of, of becoming more expert. And I usually am afraid to put the book down after a chapter and a half in despair. It's, it's usually on the appearance of an equation. Uh, <laughs> how good at science are you now, Fiona? I'm actually similar, okay? I'm similar, and I do read a lot of books about science, but the ones with equation and statistics and tables, I put down as well. I think what I understand, and I bet you do too, having moved into this world more, is the scientific methods, the way science works, the process by which good science is gathered, the kinds of trials, the difference between an observational study that can never prove X causes Y, because that's not the way observational studies work, and a randomised control trial, which if it's a large one and a good quality one, really can tell you that a particular drug works or doesn't work. So what I've come to understand really, really well, and and this is central to the role of the Science Media Centre, is the quality of science out there, because we always, you you said this a bit in your introduction, we are always saying to the journalists, this is our role, um, this particular study is beautifully designed, really lovely from our friends in University of Edinburgh, but it cannot say this, this and this, or it contradicts the previous 10 studies, which were larger, which were better quality, which were multi-centre randomised trials. So, And then you're not saying don't cover it because it's a really good piece of science. Observational science is, is really important. But what you're saying is don't put this on the front page as coffee causes cancer or coffee cures cancer. Put this on page six as a new study published in the BMJ today, but include these caveats. And you very nicely said that science journalism does tell tend to do that in a way that other kinds of general news reporting or political reporting don't really like nuances. Science journalism at its best is all about, is this the breakthrough or is this a small step on the way to better understanding? So I want to look at some of the the case studies. The book is structured around a set of case studies around the kind of communication of science. And I want to start from one that, that is important because it's largely unfolds before the creation of the Science Media Centre, or SMC, as I'll refer to it from this point on, and and that's around GM food. So I thought that this provided, there was two stories really here. One was it provided a strong rationale for the need for the centre, and that's in a sense how it's set up in the book. But also it was an example of how difficult it is to rebalance a debate if it gets off on the wrong foot. Tell, Tell us more about the GM story. Yeah, that, actually, that's a really, a really good way to, to introduce this. We did not come in in the beginning of this, and, and I'd like to think it might have gone differently. We came in four or five years after Monsanto had introduced a GM tomato paste 
into British supermarkets. Apparently, quietly for some time, everyone always tells me it was selling happily for a, for a year or something. And then the very media savvy, amazing campaigners like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth saw that this GM technology was being used and that actually consumers were were purchasing it without knowing that this was a cutting edge new technology that they felt hadn't been sufficiently tested. And that's when it started. They are very effective campaigners. They decided this is our number one priority to campaign against this, to highlight that this technology has been introduced by a rich multinational with no consultation and no real understanding of the science. And it went pear-shaped. And they, you know, I always used to say, that in in science when I came in you were lucky if a, a research institute had one press officer if you look at Greenpeace and indeed some of the organ the aid agency that I worked for the, the press office was the most important bit of the organization their existence relied on focusing on the public through the news media so they went to the news media to start this campaign and they recruited whole newspapers the Daily Mail still has its logo actually its anti-GM logo that it used to put next to all of its reports on GM phenomenal. It was the consumer affairs people who ran it. So they got whole newspapers to join their campaign with an editorial line against GM. There's a great bit in Alistair Campbell's diaries, which probably no one else noticed, but where Tony Blair keeps saying he's fond of GM crops. And Alistair Campbell finally says, as more and more people were reading these stories and becoming concerned about it, Tony, can you shut up about GM crops? You know, you're, you're not winning the battle out there. Let the scientists do it. And it was actually a really important moment for me because I don't think anyone told the scientists that the government had decided that they should be doing this. The scientists were ill-prepared to do it back then, these mild-mannered plant scientists testing this new approach in John Innes Centre, you know, world-renowned plant science institutes that just didn't have that kind of culture. But even those politicians like Tony Blair, who were favourable to this technology, were kind of keeping out of it because it had become so toxic. So yeah, that is that is quite a mountain to climb, isn't it, to get over that. And, and slowly but surely, the surveys came out showing the British public opposed GM supermarkets responded to that by withdrawing all GM products and we had a a terrible mess so that was when we came in really and it was like what on earth do you do about this and I think I think already our philosophy was that what you do is you bring the scientists doing the research into it we'd seen that people like Robert Winston you know a, a wonderful fertility expert and Susan Greenfield who set up the SMC a very popular neuroscientist they had waded in because they could see that the this GM debate was anti-science you know there's a front page I remember on the mirror saying you will find genes in your tomatoes as you know it was terrifying the public that there might be some genetic material in their tomatoes and Susan Greenfield and Robert Winston and people like that waded in to defend science, but they didn't know about GM. They weren't experts in GM. They weren't plant scientists. And the mild-mannered plant scientists were not saying GM is is fantastic. They were looking into it in their labs. They were putting it in, in early field trials. They were testing not only whether it was safe, but also whether it would impact adversely on biodiversity. They were doing the kinds of, they were asking the kinds of scientific questions that they should have been with a new technology, but they weren't part of the conversation. And 
I felt that was a real problem, that some of the celebrity scientists were defending GM in a kind of, you know, you're all anti-science, you're Luddites, let's bring this on. And actually what we needed was the scientists doing those studies to come out and say, don't worry, we're testing this, we do care about diversity, we're, but we're environmental scientists after all. So we're all, they were all card-carrying members of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth themselves up to this point, but they weren't part of the conversation. So I think that was our first thing is we need to bring those scientists into the conversation, persuade them to be part of it, and then start running press briefings on their research and their field trials and taking journalists. So very, very different approach and a much kind of slower approach in a way and recognising we weren't going to overturn public opposition and, and concern overnight. I thought there was another theme here, Fiona, which is kind of motive and commercial interest, which is that the public's, the capacity of organisations to stir the public up and get the public to feel distrustful is influenced by whether or not you can imply that the reason this technology is being progressed is for commercial profit or that or that because commercial organisations are in, there is clearly some kind of problematic motivation. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that there are lots of theories about what went wrong, but certainly the fact that this food was introduced to the British public by Monsanto, a huge multinational. So anyone who's wary of multinationals and their motives are going to be against. And that, I think, again, that points to why our view was, why is the conversation between Greenpeace and Monsanto? I mean, you know, what about the scientists who are developing this and testing it? They always made the point that actually, for them, that the presence of these multinationals was not helpful because they tended to mop up all the funding and mop up all the kind of regulatory space. They wanted public good GM and they wanted the regulators to allow them to do these field trials. And they, they didn't particularly welcome the presence of these big companies at that stage. So, yeah, so I think unpicking that and, you know, the number of times when you would watch these debates and see very clearly that what that person was objecting to was the multinational, not the technology. And that was one of the things that made me cross, I think, with Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth was sometimes a lack of honesty. You know, their big thing was, A, it's dominated by multinationals who are all out to screw you and not interested in the public good, but B, it is not safe. And actually, already, the early evidence was pointing to the fact that in terms of safety profile, these foods, these crops appeared to be very similar to that of normal foods. There was no evidence emerging that in terms of of safety, that they were going to be distinctly or significantly different. You know, honestly, I, I say this in the book, and I genuinely mean this. If scientists had entered this debate, introduced this technology to the British public, done briefing after briefing about their new study, and the British public had still said, no, don't want to go there. I always think George Monbiot is quite honest. He says, yes, it's safe to eat. I'd swim in it. I'd bathe in it. I'd eat it. But I don't, we shouldn't go there just because we can. You know, we shouldn't always progress because we can. And I would prefer to turn the clock backwards and have a different kind of environment. At least that was very, very honest. He wasn't pushing the, this is going to kill you line. And I think, yeah, I think the, the for the scientists, I just really wanted them to get out and do that. But if the end result of that was a public that said, actually, we too, we too believe that just because this technology exists, we should plough on and adopt it and move forward to this great new technological age of biotechnology. If they said no to that, that's a value, isn't it? That's an opinion. That's that's perfectly valid. But at least we could have said that they did that. They formed that opinion 
based on having heard good evidence, based on understanding that this was not a dangerous food to eat or a dangerous crop to introduce into the environment. It was relatively safe, but we choose not to take it. But that's not what happened. The public said no to GM and this whole area and this whole approach to agriculture based on understanding and having heard repeatedly in the media that this was damaging to the environment and unsafe to human health. Now, one of the refreshing things about the book, Fiona, is is your willingness to explore cases where even after the SMC had been established, you weren't able to improve the debate or help scientists communicate the truth. And, and one of these is the sorry tale of ME and potential therapies for ME. The lesson I kind of took from that, and I guess this, this reflects my own experience over many years, is that a relatively small group of highly motivated activists can be very disruptive and and that one needs to have particular strategies for dealing with, and we saw this a bit in the kind of anti-vaxxer movement, a, you know, a small group of really, really dedicated people can have a massively disproportionate impact, can't they? Yes. Honestly, this is... This is the most depressing chapter in the book, isn't it? I mean, this, <laughs> and this is one of the most depressing issues for me. I still, you know, I'm still talking to some of the scientists who are researching this horrible, horrible condition, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, who are treating patients who, who desperately want those patients to get better, desperately want to find approaches, treatments, new science, new understanding of the biology in order to to offer something to these patients. And yet they are being tortured. I mean tortured, not harassed, targeted, demonised, cancelled, you know, any of them who ever get an award for anything. There's a massive campaign to remove that award. If they're honoured, people, you know, take to the internet to say they shouldn't be honoured. So I just, I find it very dispiriting. But I think one of the reasons I really wanted to put it in is I really am not sure that this will be a one-off. I think I probably do say it's the one that got away in the book, but I'm not so sure about that because, and I think that's why I use that title about first they came, you know, that poem, first they came for the communists and I didn't speak out, then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak out and then they came for me. Because that's what I want to say to the scientific community, which, and the scientific establishment who have not backed this group of researchers, they have not backed them. They have not had the kind of support that the scientific community did get when they were targeted on animal research, where slowly but surely and finally, led by David Sainsbury, the then Labour Science Minister, the scientific community stood up and said, we cannot allow a legitimate area of scientific inquiry, which is the use of animals in research, to be driven out of the UK. We have to stand up and defend it in numbers, both individual scientists, but also the the funders, the academies, the people who run science. Um, That hasn't happened here. And I find that very dispiriting. And the reason I want to, and I'm really glad you've asked me about it, it's interesting that very few of the people who've written about the book have even mentioned this chapter, is to say, if we let this one go, if we let a body of evidence be almost kind of written out of the science story about what could work for these patients, what next? If you're a patient activist who is angry about a particular avenue of research, 
whether that be about autism or what, you know, there, there are other areas that are similarly kind of contentious. Are we going to, I mean, surely they would look at the tactics of this and say, well, if we mount a massive campaign and target that at organisations like NICE, like the HRA, which looks after clinical trials, like the Medical Research Council that funds all medical research in the country. If we if we target all these groups, we can actually hamper these particular areas of research or lines of inquiry that we don't like, because that was very effective. And I I hope I emphasise it in the book, but honestly, I speak to organisations every day, wonderful directors of communications who clearly say to me, I know, Fiona, I know we should be doing something. We know we should be doing something, but we're not going there. We are not going to speak out on this. We are not going to defend this body of evidence. We are not going to defend this group of scientists because it will bring us a whole load of grief and hassle and it will tie up resources and it's just too painful. So we're going to step away from it. Well, Fiona, let's move on from a disappointment. And as I say, it's kind of really refreshing the way that you're going to be totally open about about the fact that you, you weren't able to achieve what you wanted to achieve there. But let's talk about a success story, and that is research on human-animal hybrids. Now, this could have gone horribly wrong, and you were up against a tough enemy. I mean, one of the great historical tough enemies, the Catholic Church, and also the kind of intrinsic yuck factor implied by that technology. Why did you succeed in that case? We succeeded in that case because by the time we discovered that the British government had decided to move to ban an area of therapeutic stem cell research based on a consultation which was dominated by church groups and religious groups and in which the public said, yuck, no, we don't want to go there. By the time we'd found that out, the philosophy of the Science Media Centre was forming very nicely, thank you. And I was discovering, there was a fantastic stem cell researcher called Anne McLaren, uh, who along with Robin Lovell-Badge and Stephen Minger, these stem cell researchers, told me that they'd been to China to look at the fact that they could do some of these therapeutic stem cell research where they could better understand disease through using animal eggs, so human DNA, but animal eggs, rather than relying on the donation by women of human embryos after fertility treatment, etc. And they needed that large supply of eggs because this was very experimental. They didn't know whether this was going to work. So they started to be interested in the concept of using cow's eggs, rabbit's eggs. As soon as they told me, I mean, I've been a press officer for 30 years. As soon as they told me that, I was like, oh, my God, are you seriously visiting China to talk about using, you know, embryo research is controversial enough to talk about combining human DNA, the nucleus of the egg, with cow's eggs and animal. I could see the headlines straight away, you know, Frankenstein, designer babies. I could see it all in front of me. And I said, right, come into the Science Media Centre. Let's get the health and science journalists, which, as you rightly said, are, are great journalists who really care about the science tell them that you went to China and there was shock and awe especially from the press officers but these are only exploratory discussions we're not asking for HFEA license yet to do it that's probably two years away you know we'll get horrible headlines no let's not do it and I just got the bit between my teeth and said no let's do it let's do it let's do it because I could see that that's what had happened with GM you know these were the right research these weren't the celebrity scientists these weren't the companies they only 
wanted to better understand motor neuron disease and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And I persuaded them. And by the time the government went to ban this area of research, we'd had two or three briefings by that time. You know, and some of these were clinical scientists as well. I remember Chris Shaw, who's a motor neuron disease expert, sitting in front of a room of journalists saying, you know, we we too would like to use animal eggs and we are going to apply with Ian Wilmot, who created Dolly the Sheep. We are going to apply very soon to the HFEA to do this research on these human-animal hybrids. And, of course, the journalists asked the right questions. You know, the public are going to hate this. The public are going to be opposed to this. And he just looked at them and he said, do you know about motor neuron disease? Do you know that you are diagnosed and you have two years till your death? Do you know how you die? And right now I have nothing to offer these patients, nothing I don't have a drug. I don't have a cure. You know, I I tell them maybe they'll get three years rather than two. We can create motor neuron disease in a dish through this approach. And the journalist just wrote that down. And that was the quote that appeared the next day. So that is the main lesson, Matthew. That that is the main lesson that and the reason that I thought we, we can take this on, because the journalists already understood this science they had already reported on it under sensational headlines under scary headlines definitely but the quotes there were from the scientists it was the scientists unlike what i mentioned earlier about gm where it's friends of the earth greenpeace and monsanto that collectively introduced this technology to the british public i was determined that it would be robin lovell badge and mclaren chris shaw a motor neuron disease clinician who would sit in front of the journalists and be the ones that introduced this technology to the british public so that story, you know, brilliantly illustrates the kind of what is the biggest theme, of course, of the whole book, which is the importance of of scientists being proactive and transparent in their work. Now, your book is overwhelmingly positive about both scientists and journalists, but there's another group about whom you express more ambivalence, and that's science press officers, and in particular government science press officers. But ultimately, it isn't really them that you've got a problem with, but more their organisational and political masters, isn't it? Yes. So I think there's two slightly different things there. And it was I found this bit hard to characterise, but I think there is there is more and more science coming under the auspices of the government. We all know what governments are, Matthew, you know more than anyone. And the government communications machine exists, and I've looked it all up about how it presents itself, to communicate the ideas and messages of the government to the British public. And that's great. What's wrong with that? Of course, they need a government communications machine. I understand, I'm told, they need this grid, which is a number 10 grid, where all the different government announcements from DH, from DEFRA, from all the departments are put on the grid to coordinate. And number 10 decides when they come out, how they come out, who will be the spokespeople. That was Alistair Campbell's invention, but Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane and everyone who followed us kind of adopted that. I can see the benefits of all of that. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to criticise that. What I cannot see, and I, I think a few people have really pressed me on this saying, why is this a bad thing? But I've just got a feeling maybe we need to ask the public that the public will be able to see what I'm saying quite clearly. Do we want scientific data gathered in publicly funded universities and research institutes to be on that grid do we do we do we want scientists who attempt to impartially objectively apply the scientific method to their design of their trial and come out with data to hand that 
to ministers and press officers as ministers to communicate to the public. I just don't think we do. And, you know, you talk about me being honest about my failures. I have failed. I've been saying this for 20 years when I realised how much publicly funded science ended up on the grid or somehow with government, you know, you'd, you'd line up a briefing with the scientists, with their university press officers, and then the university press officer would say, oh, no, it's inconvenient to number 10, and they don't want a press conference, or they would like it in two weeks' time, or whatever. And, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying there's anything malign, or so I'm not saying any data is suppressed. I've got no evidence of that. I'm just saying the way that the science comes out is politicised. It it is moved into a political system and therefore it's politicised. And it's about messaging. It's about whether those messages are convenient for government. And I just think we should take it out of there. I mean, it's as simple as that. I don't think the sky would fall in. I think government press officers wake up in the morning and think, right, what do I have to manage and control? We need to control the narrative today. What is under my control? And they see scientific data because it's funded by them and somehow it's got into... The university press officer is told you've got to check with DH, DH then have to check with number 10. So they control it because they can. So what I'm looking for, and I've looked into this quite a lot now, is how come official statistics is not like that? And it ends up exactly the kind of campaign that I'm running a bit on my own, I must say, but they, the Royal Statistical Society 20 years ago said official statistics, national official statistics on unemployment, on crime are being spun by government because the people that gather them, give them to government and ministers announce the unemployment figures today and they are spinning them and they are misleading. Let's get rid of that. So a big process started, which took years. I mean, it took decades, apparently. And out of that, the 2007 Official Statistics Act, so legislation, followed up by an even tougher 2017 Code of Conduct, which governs all of statistics, it says they must be separate. They must the raw numbers on crime numbers on whatever. And of course, we saw this so much in COVID. ONS has become the national treasure, the Office of National Statistics. And that's because on a daily basis, they were putting out the numbers of how many people had COVID. They wouldn't even do their own press conferences. We said, why don't you do press conferences and and answer the journalist questions about what these numbers mean? No, because then we'll be putting our opinion on them. We're just going to put the numbers out there and anyone who wants to can interpret them. So obviously politicians interpreted them. We got a bunch of independent statisticians who ran briefings every single Tuesday when the ONS stats, death stats came out to answer journalist questions about the ONS stats. So I just think that's a beautiful example. And I'm hoping that because there's a bit of a mood, I think, after this pandemic, that we did things very differently. Things that everybody said, you cannot do it. You cannot, you cannot get a vaccine regulated and licensed in six months. That's impossible. You know, it's always taken five years years suddenly the possible is there the art of the possible we can do things that everybody said we couldn't do before so I'm hoping to just capitalize on this new mood and get some kind of guidelines which separate raw scientific data from the government communications machine and I think then the government comms people will wake up and think oh we've got no control over that that's fine it's the sky won't fall in nothing bad will happen they'll be liberated from one area but until that happens I think they will see science as part of government output and and I, and I hope that changes yeah, and look, you know, I you know, I've seen this from the other side and you know, I know what it's like in government when, you know, a report is published with 20 
conclusions assessing government performance, 19 of them are positive and one's negative, and you absolutely know which one's going to be in all the headlines. So I know what it's like in government, always knowing that the worst possible interpretation, the most alarmist interpretation will always be taken for anything that you put out. But, you know, you just have to kind of excuse the sexist phrase, man up really, and recognize that's the world you're dealing in. And actually the best way to address it is to put the data out there, is to be proactive. And and so I, I, I agree with you. And I we haven't got time to talk about it now, but you, you, you make a similar point about, as it were, the kind of creep of corporatism in universities and the way in which science press offices and universities are becoming a bit of a dying breed being or being asked to kind of focus as much on kind of marketing and brand and promotion as the communication of, of the science. And that's that's one of a number of kind of warnings you give at the end of the book. So just very briefly, Fiona, you've achieved an enormous amount, but yet there is a warning tone at the end of your book. There is a concern that you have that a lot of what you've achieved is could still be fragile. T- tell us why you're worried. Yeah, so I think exactly right, Matthew, because of those things, because um, and it is ironic, isn't it? Because science press officers are my tribe and, and I absolutely love them. But if I was to say where some of the problems, the barriers to openness exist, it is from the communications sector. It's from the communications people in organisations who, who, as you've pointed out, are increasingly not coming via the science and research and passionate about their scientists and their science route, but coming from, you know, inside government or from big corporations and, and dealing with the fact that they have to deal with a lot of change management and reputation. So that's what worries me. We, on a daily, there's a lot of swearing in our office. I don't know if that came over in the book, but, you know, if, if there was a kind of a secret And wine there, drinking. And wine drinking, yes, excellent. I'm glad you pointed that out. The swear levels are at their highest at the Science Media Centre when a, a communications person, doesn't matter where from, steps in to say to their scientist, best not, don't fan the flames leave this to someone else. And do you know what? Even sitting saying it now, I'm feeling cross about it. It, it happened, happened in the last couple of days about hepatitis. You know, we've got these very, very strange thing going on with over 100 very small children getting hepatitis and, and that's unusual and we don't really know why. And, and this is absolutely a science media centre issue. And just reaching out to some of the best scientists who are treating some of these patients, they know what's happening. And them saying yes, them saying yes, yes, we would do a, an early briefing where you can get the science and health journalists in just to kind of explore. It will be full of people saying, we don't know yet, we don't know yet, we don't know yet. And one of the ones that we wanted, the comms person said no. And he's not somebody who wants a media profile. He was a bit wary about this anyway. I don't think we're going to convince him. And we're going, we may have to not have a briefing to inform the journalists and the public about this. Or we have a briefing without one of the best people. And that is because of a comms person. It isn't because of the scientist. It isn't because of the journalist. It's because of a comms person. So that worries me. And when you look back at it, the pandemic was good because I think people saw the link between the need to, you know, you you weren't going to solve this pandemic without bringing the public with you. So the link between the need to speak to the public and do the science was clearer than it's ever been. I just worry about when we go back to things like Climate Gate, where this, you know, all these emails were stolen and made it look like climate change was a hoax. When when you've got a kind of toxic issue, which is very polarised, the lab leak, you know, it was this, was this virus from a lab leak in China or from natural origins. That's one little bit of 
the COVID story where I have, you know, four, five, six scientists who said, no, I'm not talking to the media about that now because it's so toxic. I'll get loads of abuse and comms people who rather than, you know, I, I just don't understand the person who goes into communications and says, don't communicate about this. That gives you a list of 10 reasons why communicating is dangerous and risky and could create problems. Right, you know, that your policy person should do that or your legal person or your politician, but but not your comms officer. So that worries me. And I really hope that we can get back to kind of saying to universities and vice chancellors and, you know, this science press officer who cares about openness, who believes that it's not science if it's not open, that actually it being open and scientists talking about it is an essential part of the scientific endeavour. It honestly is no good doing science in laboratory behind closed doors and not talking about it because then it's not part of public knowledge. Well, Fiona, you referred there to a couple of other chapters and I'll tantalise potential readers by saying that you can read about the whole sorry saga of Climate Gate, the equally sorry story of the sacking of David Nutt for talking about the science of drugs. Those are good reasons to, to buy a copy of your uh, wonderful book, Fiona, Beyond the Hype. And I, I just want to end in thanking you for the book and thanking you for the interview to say that at the end of it, it felt to me as though, although I'm not a scientist and I'm not a journalist, that, that it helped me when I do read science journalism to, to read a little between the lines, to understand some things that I should be looking for. But I want to really end, Fiona, with the quote that you use more often than any quote in this book. You clearly love it. And it's to bear in mind the next time you read a story about how coffee, as you say, can cure cancer or that knitting will give you cancer or whatever it is. Just remember what Carl Sagan said. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.